Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 10, Exodus chapter 12. This week we begin Exodus chapter 12. And this chapter of Exodus is almost a book unto itself. Here the festival or the ordinance of the Passover, Pesach, is established. In fact, another God-ordained feast, the festival of unleavened bread, is also laid out here. The important details and timing and who may participate and who may not are also described. And these details are rich and they're full of spiritual meaning, which we're going to discuss. But this chapter also includes the carrying out of God's decree that he shall kill by his own hand all the firstborn of Egypt, people and livestock. And it ends with the people of Israel packing up and quickly leaving Egypt, once again giving us some important information about who went, how many went, where they went. Now just for the sake of organizing our thoughts to take on this, all these important facts and the meaning contained in the 12th chapter of Exodus, it helps if we can see it arranged in five parts. Verses 1 through 14 are God directing Moses on the details of establishing the first Passover. Verses 15 through 20 look to the future. Okay, as these details are meant for future Passover celebrations. Verses 21 through 27 has Moses communicating all that God told him to the people, actually to the elders of Israel. And verse 28 records the people of Israel being obedient to Moses and God. And finally, Verse 29 to the end of the chapter describes the horror of that dreadful night that thousands upon thousands of Egyptian firstborns, human and animal, were killed by Jehovah for the sake of Israel. And then it goes on to describe the first stages of the Hebrews' exodus from captivity in Egypt. So, let's begin. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to read it all. Exodus chapter 12. Adonai spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, and he said, You're to begin your calendar with this month. It'll be the first month of the year for you. Speak to all the assembly of Israel and say, On the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb or kid for his family, one per household, except that if the household's too small for a whole lamb or kid, then he and his next door neighbor should share one, dividing it in proportion to the number of people eating it. Your animal must be without defect, a male in its first year, and you may choose it from either the sheep or the goats. You're to keep it until the 14th day of the month, and then the entire assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter it 
at dusk. They are to take some of the blood smeared on the two sides and top of the door frame at the entrance of the house in which they eat it. That night they're to eat the meat roasted in the fire. They're to eat it with matzah and maror. Don't eat it raw or boiled, but roasted in the fire with its head, the lower parts of its legs and its inner organs. Let nothing of it remain till morning. If any of it does remain, burn it up completely. Here's how you're to eat it with your belt fastened, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand. You're to eat it hurriedly. It is Adonai's Pesah, Passover. For that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and kill all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and animals, and I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. I am Adonai. The blood will serve you as a sign marking the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. When I strike the land of Egypt, the death blow will not strike you. This will be a day for you to remember and celebrate as a festival to Adonai from generation to generation. You're to celebrate it by a perpetual regulation. For seven days, you're to eat matzah. On the first day, remove the leaven from your houses. For whoever eats hametz, leavening, from the first to the seventh days is to be cut off from Israel. On the first and seventh days, you are to have an assembly set aside for God. On those days, no work is to be done except what each must do to prepare his food. You may only do that. You are to observe the festival of matzah, for on this very day, I brought your divisions out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you are to observe this day from generation to generation by a perpetual regulation. From the evening of the fourteenth day of the first month, until the evening of the 21st day, you're to eat matzah. During those seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. Whoever eats food with hametz in it is to be cut off from the community of Israel. It doesn't matter whether he's a foreigner or a citizen of the land. Eat nothing with hametz in it. Wherever you live, eat matzah. Then Moses called for all the leaders of Israel and said, Select and take lambs for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of oregano or hyssop leaves and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and smear it on the two sides and top of the door frame. Then none of you is to go out the door of his house until morning. For Ad and I will pass through to kill the Egyptians, but when he sees the blood on the top and the two sides, Ad and I will pass over the door. will not allow the slaughterer to enter your houses and kill you. You are to observe this as a law you and your descendants forever. When you come to the land which Adonai will give you, as he has promised, you're to observe this ceremony. When your children ask you, what do you mean by this ceremony? Say, it's the sacrifice of Adonai's Passover. Because Adonai has passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he killed the Egyptians but spared our houses. The people of Egypt bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did as Adonai had ordered Moses and Aaron. That is what they did. At midnight, Adonai killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh sitting on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. Pharaoh got up in the night. He, all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was horrendous wailing. 
in Egypt, for there wasn't a single house without someone dead in it. He summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, leave my people. Both you and the people of Israel go. Serve as Adonai as you said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you said. Just get out of here. But bless me too. The Egyptians pressed to send the people out of the land quickly because they said, otherwise we'll all be dead. The people took their dough before it had become leavened and wrapped their kneading bowls in their clothes and on their shoulders. The people of Israel had done what Moses had said. They had asked the Egyptians to give them silver and gold, jewelry and clothing. And Adonai had made the Egyptians so favorably disposed towards the people that they had let them have whatever they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. The people of Israel traveled from Ramses to Sukkot, some 600,000 men on foot, not counting children. A mixed crowd also went up with them, as well as livestock in large numbers, both flocks and herds. They baked matzo loaves from the dough they had brought out of Egypt since it was unleavened. Because they had been driven out of Egypt without time to prepare supplies for themselves. The time the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years to the day, all the divisions of Adonai left the land of Egypt. This was a night when Adonai kept vigil to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And this same night continues to be a night when Adonai keeps vigil for all the people of Israel throughout all their generations. Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, This is the regulation for the Passover lamb. No foreigner is to eat it. But if anyone has a slave, he bought for money. When you have circumcised him, he may eat of it. Neither a traveler nor a hired servant may eat it. It is to be eaten in one house. You're not to take any of the meat outside the house. You're not to break any of its bones. The whole community of Israel is to keep it. If a foreigner staying with you wants to observe Adonai's Passover, all of his males must be circumcised. Then he may take part and observe it. He will be like a citizen of the land. But no uncircumcised person is to eat it. The same teaching is to apply equally to the citizen and to the foreigner living among you. All the people of Israel did just as Adonai had ordered Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, Adonai brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their divisions. You know, verse 1 leaves us no doubt as to where and when this feast of Passover began. But verse 2 can cause some confusion for us if we're not careful because it seems that God is establishing the Jewish calendar year. Now those of you who know a little bit about the Jewish calendar and the seven yearly feasts know that Passover is a spring festival. Passover occurs in the Jewish month of Abib as it was first called but now is referred to as Nisan. The names of the 12 months of the year were originally Hebrew. But during their exile to Babylon, some 800 years after the Exodus, the Jews changed the names of the months from Hebrew to Babylonian names. Some sects of Jews 
have stubbornly clung to the more ancient original Hebrew names for each month, but most accept the more common Babylonian names today. However, the Hebrew versus the Babylonian names isn't the point of confusion I'm concerned with. Clearly God tells us, tells Israel rather, in verse 2, that this Passover month, Nisan, is to be the first month of the year. So one would think that the first day of the first month of the year would be New Year's Day. In other words, just as we follow the Julian calendar today, whereby January is the first month of the year on the first day of January, we celebrate New Year's Day, the day a new year begins. But Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, which literally means head of the year, does not occur on the first day of Nisan. In fact, Rosh Hashanah doesn't even occur until the fall several months after Passover in the month of Tishri. So what gives? Well, the Jews actually have several kinds of New Year's. Just as we have a cycle that begins with January 1st and ends on December 31st for marking a, a normal calendar year, if you have a business, you also have what is called a fiscal year. Don't you? And that can start any month you choose. And this has primarily to do, of course, with taxation and with accounting purposes. If you go to school or a school teacher, you know that the school year can vary from institution to institution. That it's kind of somewhat arbitrary when it starts and stops. And it's often changed. And certainly... It's connected to neither a business fiscal year nor the new year of the 12-month calendar. If you're a farmer, your year is based more on the cycles of agriculture. Okay, and since all of the Hebrew festivals are based around agriculture, they're not necessarily in tune with the solar year or the calendar year because it's more about the cycle of seasons. And there are even more kinds of yearly measurements I could use as examples. So, in the Jewish calendar, Nisan, as prescribed here in verse 2, is considered the month for counting the reigns of kings and queens. And it's the first month of the Jewish religious calendar. The Jewish month of Elul, which is about August begins the yearly tithing cycle when it comes to tithing animals. The month of Shvat, February approximately, begins the yearly cycle for determining which fruits of the tree harvest can be eaten and tithed. The first day of Tishri, which is also called Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, is used to, de to determine when the number of the year changes. Okay? That is, when on 12.01 a.m. on the first day of January, we go from, say, 2006 to 2007, and then the next year, 2007, 2008, so on. So every 12 months on the first day of the new year, the number of the year increases by one. Easy enough. 
Well, the Jews have a specific month that they change calendar years, but it's not the month of Nisan, even though it's the first month of the Jewish calendar. Rather, it is somewhat mid-calendar year that the Jews advance the number of the year by one. And it's also the month that they add days or weeks to their calendars every now and then because they use a lunar calendar right, as the basis. So adjustments have to be made to their calendar every few years to keep their calendars accurate and in line with the more accurate solar calendar. So it's a com complex thing. It's not important you remember all this detail. But it is important to understand that the biblical calendar is nothing like our current nice, neat, solar-based, 365 and a quarter day calendars. So when we come to the establishment of festival days in the Bible, or the dates of specific events, or when it talks about how long a certain king or queen reigned, you have to think in terms of the Jewish calendar system, not our modern day system. So what we know is that the first Passover, marking the night before the Jews left Egypt, was in the spring in what we think, around, think of as around the first part of April. All right. And in verse 3, based on the Jewish lunar calendar, God instructs Israel that on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, four days before Passover, they're to select, not kill, just select the lamb that's to be used for the Passover sacrifice. Now, before we go any farther, let me dispel some myths about this lamb. First, this has to be a male lamb. Second, it has to be a year old. You're looking at a one-year-old male ram. Okay. In other words, we're not talking about some cute, fuzzy little baby creature taken from its mama. This is not an animal that your kindergartner could carry around. A one-year-old male sheep is called a ram. They have horns. Okay. They've developed a certain amount of aggression, whatever sheep aggression is. All right, and they're pretty big, maybe as big as 50 pounds. More, they're maturing, they're approaching their prime. Okay, depending on the variety, the species, even though a male sheep will generally continue growing until they're about five years old, the vast majority of the growths already occurred by the end of the first year. A one-year-old male sheep is an adult fully capable of reproducing and likely has already been used to sire lambs. Contrast that to when you buy lamb chops in a grocery store. Okay, You're not eating adult sheep. Generally the age of the sheep you're eating is no more than about six months. Okay, So let's get the children's book pictures of Mary Had a Little Lamb out of our minds and our heads and what lies underneath that clear cellophane wrapper you know in the meat counter when we think about the animal that God has commanded for Israel to sacrifice in every home 
And this couldn't be a sickly ram. It couldn't be a runt. It had to be the best ram of all the yearling rams you had available. Healthy, vibrant, uninjured, unscarred. Now in verses 3 and 4, it is explained that although the general rule is that one ram per household is to be slaughtered, if it was a small household, then another small household should share a single animal. God values the life of his creatures. Okay? These rams were innocent. They were being killed because of mankind's sinful nature. And God didn't want any more than necessary to be slaughtered, and he certainly didn't want their meat wasted. We find out in verse 5 that a male goat could be legally substituted for a sheep. And in verse 6, that although the ram is to be selected four days before Passover, it's not to be killed until Passover evening, which God says is to be the 14th of Nisan. Okay, time for another explanation. Christian Passover only occasionally coincides with Jewish Passover, or better yet, the biblical Passover. For instance, a couple years ago, Christian Passover, what we often call Good Friday, was on April the 9th. Pesah, the true Passover that is Nisan the 14th, was April the 6th. Okay. Christians changed the biblical Passover to a politically based Passover. Okay. Because due to decrees by early Gentile church bishops and then the Roman Emperor Constantine in the 4th century AD, it was decided that Passover was always to be the Friday before Easter. And it would not be called Passover anymore. It would be called Good Friday. And Easter was always to be celebrated on a Sunday, of course. Well, since the Jewish calendar and the modern Julian calendar don't jibe, and since God gave numerical dates that Passover was to occur on, not fixed days of the week, then it's only every few years that these two ships in the night, passing in the night, Christian Passover and Jewish Passover, coincide. Okay. Now, do you get this? Okay. I mean, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. The 31st of October is always what? Halloween, right? Always. But one year, October 31st falls on a Monday, another year a Tuesday, another year Wednesday, so on and so forth. Halloween is assigned a numerical date, right? Not a day of the week. Right? Passover like we see here in Exodus, the biblical Passover is also assigned a numerical date, not a day of the week. Okay? Here's the thing. The Passover established in Egypt is a type. It was a shadow of what was to come. It most certainly represented real and actual deliverance from death originally in Egypt. But 1,400 years later, 
Christ brought the fullest meaning intended to Passover by he himself becoming the Passover, that is, by becoming the sacrificial Passover ram. By our trusting God in symbolically and spiritually applying Jesus' blood to the doorposts of these homes, our bodies, we are passed over for the death that is our due wages for our sins. That was the spiritual meaning of Passover and Exodus, but was really only revealed upon Yeshua's death. All the biblical feasts that, frankly, we have been taught by the mainstream church to ignore as obsolete and irrelevant because they're part of the Old Testament, which it generally regards as abolished, were set up by God as types, as models, and as commemorations for the purpose of teaching and preparing us for their ultimate fulfillment. Okay? And although they had a real and tangible purpose and meaning to the Israelites when they were first established, there would be a fuller meaning to each of those feasts in the future. Now, Yeshua was not killed by coincidence on Passover. Okay. The Holy Father sent our Savior to be executed precisely on Passover day, the 14th of Nisan, in order to bring the festival of Passover to its fullest meeting. So, follow me. It seems a little odd that Jews who don't yet believe in Yeshua as Savior celebrate the very day of his death, unknowingly to them, established precisely for that purpose, and they do it exactly in the way and on the day as God commanded it. But we, the Gentile church, don't. All due to the tradition established by a Roman politician almost 1700 years ago as a compromise to the pagan sun worshippers and the anti-Jewish church bishops we Gentile believers have abandoned the God-ordained remembrances. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd rather follow God's divine ordinance for Passover than man-made doctrines built around man-made political and social agendas, especially concerning this unequaled memorial feast. That ought to be unequaled for us. From verses 8 to 11, God adds more details as to exactly how the Israelites are to proceed with the Passover ritual. Now, in addition to selecting a one-year-old ram without blemish and making sure that enough people are present to eat that ram to ensure it's not wasted, God adds the following instructions. First, the sacrifice... The killing and preparing of the ram was to occur between the evenings. That means at twilight, approximately. The blood was to be captured in a basin. Some of the blood was to be smeared on the two sides, the doorposts of the door, and on the lintel, the crossbeam above the door. A hyssop branch, most today think it was a type, a species of oregano, 
Okay, was to be used to dip into the basin of blood from that lamb and then paint it on the doorway. During the time Jehovah was going throughout Egypt killing the Egyptian first, firstborn, at that moment the Hebrews were to be eating their Passover meal. The meal was to consist first of the ram itself. It was to be roasted over a fire, whole, with the head attached, fully cooked, not to be boiled in water. Unleavened bread, bread without yeast, was to be eaten. Bitter herbs were to be eaten. Whatever was left of the ram, uneaten, was before sunrise to be completely burnt up, destroyed by fire. The Israelites are to eat the lamb dressed, fully dressed, sandals on their feet, ready for action, because they're about to leave Egypt. Now, each of these parts of the Passover ritual had spiritual meaning. The Passover ram, of course, pointed to the ultimate deliverer from death, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. The bitter herbs signified the Israelites' bitter centuries of captivity and hard labor in Egypt. The unleavened bread spoke of sincerity and truth. Right? Leaven in the Bible is a symbol of sin and deceit. Okay? The bitter herbs eaten together with the sweet unleavened bread signified the bittersweet event that the Passover was. Death for those who were the ransom, Egypt. Life to others whom the Lord has set apart from the rest, the Israelites. In its ultimate fulfillment, it meant death for our ransom, Jesus, and life for others, us as believers. The ram was to be served whole, complete, Okay. And we're going to see much later in chapter 12 that not a bone of the animal was to be broken. See, this was a precursor of Christ who did not have a bone broken in his execution, though the breaking the leg bones of the victim was customary during a Roman crucifixion. They didn't do that with Jesus. The hyssop branch signified purification. We'll See that in the New Testament with the cleansing of the leper and in Psalm 51. By the way, in, I think as I mentioned earlier, that, that hyssop branch today, it's thought there was actually oregano. If you go to an Israeli market today, they'll sell you a spice called hyssop. But they will tell you freely that this is not the same thing as the hyssop here in Exodus. Now, the divine ordinances being laid out to Moses and Israel were interrupted momentarily in verse 12 when God, Jehovah, reiterates what's going to happen on Passover night. That it will be he himself who will proceed throughout the land of Egypt, killing all the firstborn of Egypt and bringing low all the gods that the Egyptians had bowed down to. I mean... One can only imagine the scene that night. Little babies, toddlers, teenagers, adults, the elderly, suddenly, 
for no apparent reason their breathing stops and their hearts fail. No means of reviving them was possible. People in the streets just fell over dead. No apparent cause. I mean, can you mentally picture the multitudes of panicked Egyptians rushing to their pagan priests for help, praying in fear and desperation and despair to their foolish household gods to save them? I mean, the Lord specifically targeted the Pharaoh as his own household lost its firstborn. The heir to the throne of Egypt died. Hundreds of thousands of livestock, maybe millions, lay dead in the pastures from one end of Egypt to the other. And it meant starvation for many Egyptians. God, unstoppable, unswayable, unapologetically bringing about this terrible judgment from which there was no escape except for Israel and all those joined to Israel who depended on the blood of the ram. Because in verse 13, Jehovah says that when he sees the blood of the ram upon the doorposts of the houses in Israel, he will pass by, pass over that home and all within it. They will not experience the death of the firstborn that all their non-believing Egyptian neighbors were at that very moment. I mean, what a sobering, dreadful thought. And my friends, this exact thing happens every single day. Between the time we all got up this morning and the time we'll retire tonight, hundreds of thousands of people across the face of this earth will perish for all time and worse for all eternity. Every day of every week. And it's going to happen tomorrow. It's going to happen the day after and the day after. Yet, by joining yourself to the Israel of God, you can avoid this. Trust God by trusting Yeshua and you have joined the Israel of God. Trust Christ, sprinkle His blood on your house, your body, you will have life. Don't. And eternal death is the certain result. You know, there is no in-between. There's no alternative. There's no neutrality. There's no escape. And in verse 14, God makes clear that this day, Passover, the 14th of Nisan, is to be a memorial forever. The last time I checked, forever means forever. Not until some Roman bishop or emperor decided otherwise. Now, beginning with verse 15 and ending with 20, God instructs the Israelites on how all future Passovers are to be celebrated. Now, actually, it's more of an addition than a change. <clears throat> this event is called the Festival of Unleavened Bread, or simply Matzah. It commands that for seven days in connection with Passover, Passover being technically a one-day event, okay, beginning on the 14th day of Nisan, that Israel's not to eat bread with yeast leaven in it. And even more, every household's to throw away all of its leaven or anything that contains leaven. Okay. Now, 
there's a rather severe penalty for eating anything with leaven during that seven-day period. Verse 19 says that the person that offends will be cut off. The Hebrew word for cut off is karet. And it means to cut off, to eliminate a body part, to cut something down, like cutting down a tree. It can mean permanent separation. Or most often in the Bible, it indicates divine destruction and death. So this being cut off is not akin to a time out for a rebellious child. Nor is it like a jail sentence with a set amount of time for punishment or being temporarily separated from society. Likely it did not, in most cases, mean that the affected person, the cut off person, was to be executed. Yet undoubtedly execution was at times the result. But it did mean that the cut off person was banished from Israel, banished from his own tribe, banished from his family, and most seriously, banished from the Lord. Now let's be clear. This is Jehovah doing the talking here. So this is not so much about the punishment of the flesh or by being disowned by your tribe. Rather, this is about being disowned by God. The spiritual benefits of being part of Israel have been terminated when you are cut off. Now notice it also doesn't matter whether one is, depending on how your Bible version phrases it, a foreigner or a citizen of Israel. Let me put that in the sense that it's meant. It doesn't matter whether you are a native, natural-born Israelite or if you are from a non-Israelite tribe, but you have joined Israel by giving up your old foreign tribe and pledging your allegiance to one of the tribes of Israel. Th this principle that God has no second-class citizens in his kingdom is made clear right here. Okay. We're going to find this same message in a number of places throughout the Old Testament and in the New. Now what this means for you and for me, who was non, most of us at least, non-Israelites, some of us are fortunate enough to be born as Israelites, have through the covenant of the blood of Christ been grafted into Israel that we might partake of Israel's covenants. And it is that God makes no spiritual distinction between those who are natural born Israelites versus foreigners who were born outside of Israel but are now grafted into Israel. Does the Lord continue to make a physical distinction? between Jews and Gentiles? Of course. And St. Paul covers that subject quite well. Now beginning in verse 21, Moses starts to communicate, actually repeat, everything that God had instructed him to the elders of Israel, and then that way the elders will then take the message to the group of people they were in charge of. Now before we go any further, let's get a mental picture of the Israelite population about this time. There was something around three million Israelites in existence and living in Egypt, which amounted to about a quarter of the total population of Egypt. Some scholars suggest that number was closer to two million. Some think it was closer to around four. 
Okay? Some of the most liberal say that the numbers the Bible gives us are grossly inaccurate and there were only a few thousand Israelites at this time, which is just goofy. Okay? And frankly would defy what was normal and natural population increase for that era. We'll get into that a little deeper in another lesson. Now the Israelites were living primarily but not entirely in what is called Lower Egypt in an area east of the Nile Delta called Goshen. But without doubt there were thousands of Israelites that had left Goshen and had scattered all over Egypt. 430 years earlier the Israelites had arrived almost exclusively as shepherds but now many were merchants and farmers and traders and most were craftsmen. There was every kind of craftsmen among the Hebrews. And they were used by Egypt to build their highways and their government buildings and their military fortresses. There had been intermarrying between the Hebrews and the Egyptians, but both sides discouraged it. Now, some Israelites lived on the frontier between Goshen and the Sinai. And a few in the Sinai itself. So when Moses gave instructions to the people's representatives, the elders, to prepare to leave Egypt, some had to hustle back to wherever they were living to get the word out to the group of Israelites who they lived among. It also means that as a huge throng of Israelites left Goshen, up in this area, led by Moses, they were joined along the way with Israelite stragglers and foreigners of non-Israelite tribes who had heard and witnessed what the God of Israel had done to Egypt and they wanted to join Israel. In a few verses we'll actually see this very issue mentioned. And in verses 25 and 26, one of our key words, service, pops up. Although, like your translation, will say, observe this ceremony or observe this rite or something like that in its place. That is, literally in verse 25 of chapter 12, it says, you are to keep this service. And in verse 26, when your children say to you, what does this service mean to you? You're to say thus and so. Okay. The importance of seeing the use of the word service is the intent of God for us to see that Israel is moving from servitude as forced laborers, as serfs for Egypt, into service. A voluntary allegiance to Yehovah based on love and trust. And of course, this is a pattern. For when we give our service to Yehovah by means of Yeshua, we move away from servitude to the evil one, to our evil inclinations. Now in verse 29, a very brief, very brief recounting of the horror of that night of death for the Egyptians' firstborns is described. And I cannot stress enough that at the very moment Yehovah was passing the eternal death sentence 
on the firstborn of Egypt, he was delivering Israel. Egypt was still in that state of koshek, spiritual darkness, while Israel reveled in God's enlightenment. While Israel was feasting and worshiping and joyously celebrating, Egypt was frozen with fear. They were in a national state of mourning at the avalanching number of dead. As it says, for there wasn't a single house without someone dead in it. Now in verse 31, the now devastated and broken Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and ordered them to leave Egypt. Along with all the Israelites, no preconditions. Take everything you own, he says, and go. But he also begs that Moses would bless him. Now, undoubtedly, the blessing was meant to remove this divine curse of death that had overcome his own household and all of Egypt. The Egyptian people were in full agreement. They pressed Israel to leave, otherwise we'll all be dead, they say. Now, you know, it's really kind of interesting. Even though the Egyptians thoroughly acknowledged Jehovah, and they now know about Jehovah and his power. You know what? Maybe better than all of us in this room. They still wouldn't believe him. For he never threatened to kill all Egyptians. Otherwise, we'll all be dead, they said. Right? Only the firstborn. There's a very big difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And there is a very big difference between hearing God and believing God versus trusting God. Knowing about God, even hearing Him and believing that He is, is simply an intellectual exercise. If it's not accompanied by knowing God, Yeshua personally and trusting Him. The Israelites quickly packed up all their belongings, including that unbaked, unleavened bread dough, that special batch, and in their packs they stored the gold and the silver that they had stripped from Egypt at God's command. Now, why would God order His people to take gold and silver from this crushed people, the Egyptians. Well, for one thing, it was going to be needed okay, for building God's sanctuary and for making the ark, which to place the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments they'd soon receive, and for making the menorah and for all other kinds of implements of service to God. For another, it was restitution for centuries about two centuries of servitude, forced labor, to a people that hated them. Now, when did the Israelites leave Egypt? On Passover. Okay, They finished their Passover meal during the nighttime, which is the beginning of the day. And they left in the morning at sunrise when it was still the same day. I mean, 
Our personal Passover, our redemption from, re from eternal death is the moment we accept Christ and sprinkle his blood on the doorposts of our bodies. But immediately upon accepting him, we're also free to leave our bondage of sin. We don't have to wait for something else to happen. We're free to go now. We're done. The chains are broken. Go. I mean, it, we can start serving God immediately upon we believe. I mean, isn't that neat? It doesn't matter where we are or what we've done. At that instant, we can begin our service to God. Verse 37 tells us that they left from Ramses and stopped at Sukkot. Ramses was right next to Pitom, and they were known in the Bible as the great stores cities. That is, they, those huge commercial and governmental warehouses that were built on the backs of the Israelites. We know exactly where Ramses and Pitom are in the land of Goshen, and they have been archaeologically excavated. Sukkot's another matter. Now, exactly where that is, is as much speculation as the exact route of the Exodus itself, and we'll begin to deal with all that next time.